Modern-day vagabonds know the joys of tossing out the itinerary and simply playing games with your day. Your best souvenir is an understanding of who you are. After you get home, you find yourself actually homesick for the road. I'm Rick Steves, and we're about to spend the hour ahead with Rolf Potts, who wrote Vagabonding, the uncommon guide to the art of long-term world travel. Rolf is one of the sharpest minds among the new generation of travel writers and bloggers. Some people have all the money in the world, but they never spend their time in a way that enriches their life. If you've dreamed of travel and dreamed of taking a year off and traveling, you should do that because time is what counts. You could say Rolf Potts is the anti-tourist, and his practical advice just might convince you to enjoy that open-ended trip of a lifetime. See if you're up for the fun and challenge of vagabonding as we get acquainted with Rolf Potts and his approach to long-term travel around the world. It's up next on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And today we're doing something a little different. We're going vagabonding. We're going to learn all about the adventures and the art of long-term world travel. I have joining me Rolf Potts. And Rolf wrote a book called Vagabonding. And Rolf, thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot, Rick. Rolf, uh, usually when I do somebody's bio, uh, you know, I say where they're from. You have no permanent address. What's going on? Well, uh, I guess I've been uh, living the vagabonding ethic for the last 10 years or so. I get a feeling you practice what you preach. You, I, I just was really charmed by your book. I, I, You know, when you're going to do an interview, you want to read these books, and I couldn't put this book down. It's a whole different ethic of travel, and you write it like you're on a mission, like you, you really believe in this. Uh, USA Today called you the Jack Kerouac of the Internet age. Does that, uh, do you like that title? <laughs> well, um, I mean, it, it's flattering because Jack Kerouac was a hip guy, but um, I think uh, our biographies are a little bit different and even our travel philosophies are a little bit different, but I'll take it as, uh, as flattery for sure. Well, tell me what you mean, uh, Rolf, by vagabonding. Uh, vagabonding is taking time off from your normal life uh, to embrace long-term travel. Um, it's not just a vacation, but it's actually a deliberate time out from your life to sort of actualize your travel dreams. And I like to keep the definition slippery. I don't like to say this, it has to be, you know, one year. But you can take six weeks off, you can take a year or two off, you can um, move and be an expatriate overseas for a while, but it's all about getting the courage to, uh, to make that happen in your life, not to wait back and think it's going to be something that happens when you're retired, but to make your travel dreams happen now. Now, my image of vagabonding is really low-end travel and uh, camping out and, you know, hobos on trains and this sort of thing. Can you vagabond uh, in comfort and spend a lot of money and uh, eat well and sleep well and, and still have that, that ethic of vagabonding? Yeah, you sure can. In fact, you can eat well and sleep well and, and not spend that much money. There's ways to do it, as, as, as you know. You can travel in cheaper parts of the world. And you can um, basically interpret it your own way. Uh, a lot of younger travelers who might have less money go very, very budget, very close to the ground when they travel. But if you're 45, you have a little bit more money, then you can very much embrace the vagabonding ethic with a little bit better budget to work with. Now, and your book is just riddled with um, poetry and quotes from various religious books and so on. And uh, a Buddhist quote I think is fascinating. We live our everyday lives as if inside an eggshell. What does that mean to you as a proponent of vagabonding? You know, it's, it's exciting. Most people do live at home, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't live at home. But outside of that home, outside of your shell, is a whole other universe. You know, it's easy to stay in your egg, to stay in your own neighborhood or your own your circle of zone. existence. In, yeah, yeah in your, into your comfort zone. I think sometimes when people get out there and they travel and they, they embrace long-term travel, it's like being hatched from that egg and realizing that, hey, you know, that little universe was great, but there's so much more. There's a whole new world that exists outside of that shell. Boy, just talking to people like you on, on my radio show, it, it reminds me of, um, even though I travel a lot, but it's still an egg shell. There's so much more that we can get outside of, and that's a, a wonderful challenge. I'm talking with Rolf Potts, and Rolf writes a book called Vagabonding, An Uncommon Guide to the Art of Long-Term World Travel. Now, Rolf, I think one challenge that we have in our complicated and very commercial world is people actually selling packages where high-powered, fast-paced people can buy 
a tour that gives them a monastic experience or something like that. What's your take on that as somebody who just sort of lives endlessly on the road and ad-libbing it? Can you take the easy way and invest in a a tour guide to give you a a monastic, get-out-of-your-eggshell vagabonding experience? I don't want to, you know, condemn every way of travel that isn't vagabonding, but sometimes if if you just sort of buy a vacation as an accessory to your overstressed life, then um, that monastic vacation, that getting away for 10 days to be at one with the universe, is probably not really going to work. It's just it's just another thing that you buy, like you might buy a flat screen television. And so I, I encourage people to really travel deliberately, to travel slowly, and to uh, embrace the unexpected, because that is going to be more rewarding spiritually and practically, and it's going to be what you remember in your later years more so than this rushed 10-day or one-week trip. A rushed trip to an ashram doesn't quite add up, really. What about, you know, in your book, you make a real clear point, slow down. Mm-hmm. Um, so many of us, well, we have the shortest vacations in the rich world in the United States. I've got a friend who's a, kind of pushing this crusade to get Americans a longer vacation time, and they mm-hmm. celebrate October 24th as Take Back Your Time Day because that's the day, if you lived in the rest of the rich world, basically in Europe, that you could stop working because they have much longer vacations than us, but Americans work straight on through. So that's the challenge for Americans is to slow down. When you're, when you're traveling, it must be quite a challenge for Americans to get away from the American tempo of life. They, they can, and um, I, I encourage travelers to do that immediately when you uh, arrive in your first destination, is not to plan a week's worth of activities, but just to breathe in the air and try the new food and, and adapt yourself to this new pace of life, because that's the advantage of long-term travel, is that it, it allows you to go slow, and that's a privilege in this day and age to be able to live slowly and find things deliberately and maybe uh, have experiences that weren't planned a week in advance. So that's a fundamental difference between basically, and it's not a right way to travel or a wrong way to travel, but you know mm-hmm. what I write for is the fast trip to Europe, and we're going to have a checklist of sites, and we're going to use our time smartly. And if you saw the Colosseum, you better know that Michelangelo's Moses is just two blocks away, so see them both while you're in that neighborhood because that's more efficient use of your time. Mm-hmm. You, on the other hand, are taking it uh, much more slowly and, and free-flowingly. And uh, Carl Franz, who wrote The People's Guide to Mexico, loved to say, wherever you go, there you are. So this is a whole different approach to travel. It's just a challenge not to micromanage your trip, isn't it? It is, because uh, life at home is something that uh, becomes more efficient when you do micromanage it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not saying that vagabonding is for everyone. Some right. some people might uh, only have time or, or the desire for a shorter trip. But when you have the time, you get to uh, experience time in a different way. You get to sort of breathe in and and take things at a different pace. And I'm not against planning, but I think planning should be approached from the perspective that you allow your itinerary room to breathe. You allow serendipity to happen. Right. John Muir, I like his concept of the time-poor traveler. Ironically, some of the wealthiest travelers are are time-poor. What does that Mm -hmm. mean to you? Well, I like to think that everybody is born equally rich in time. You might not have a lot of money, but at the beginning of life, you're given time. And some people have all the money in the world, but they never spend their time in a way that enriches their life. Hmm. And uh, John Muir brought this up, and I sort of reinforce it in the pages of Vagabonding, that um, time is your truest form of wealth in life. And if you're not spending it in a way that makes you happy or that is in tune with your dreams, then maybe you should reconsider how you spend that time. And so while I don't say that everybody needs to travel, I think if you've dreamed of travel and dreamed of taking a year off and traveling, you should do that because time is what counts. Now, that's the challenge, is for us to be creative in ways to use our time without a list of famous uh, buildings to see, you know. You mm-hmm. talk about being creative is really important. To, you say to play games with your day. What do you mean by that? Uh, well, that means, I guess, um, leaving your day open to possibility. If you walk down a street that is not on the way to your destination and you see some little restaurant that looks interesting, you can play a game. Go down there and get a coffee and uh, see what happens. You might meet somebody that, that will make your day or will become your friend forever. Or you might meet somebody who's you don't like at all, but it's part of the game of your day. It's part of embracing that unknown and just sort of letting your travels uh, lead you. 
instead of you always leading your travels. That's a challenge for a lot of Americans, but I'll tell you, I really have had some of my best travel experience ever when I do what you call um, playing games with your day. I remember when I was in Bangalore in India, in any town in India, basically. You don't need a list of sites. You just walk every day. It occurred to me so clear. Every day I can just walk in a different direction, and I'll be entertained. I'll just I'll be there. I remember when mm. I was in Turkey, uh, my goal was to take a little minibus out of the town and get off the bus where everybody on the bus kind of said, excuse me, you must be mistaken. Nobody ever got out here. And that was my sign that this is the right place to get out and then just see what happens. Yeah. There's a phrase, uh, walk until your day becomes interesting. I, I hmm. don't know who originally wrote that, but uh, that's sort of a good philosophy you have on the road is that you never know what might happen if you walk another block instead of uh, paying for a taxi. Right. I'm speaking with Rolf Potts, and uh, Rolf speaks from experience. He wrote a book called Vagabonding, An Uncommon Guide to the Art of Long-Term World Travel. Rolf, tell me, how much uh, how much traveling have you actually done in your vagabonding? I've been to uh, every continent in the world except Antarctica, probably around 60 countries. I like to, I'd like to discourage country counting as sort of a badge of merit in travel, but uh, just to sort of sum up where I've been, I've been to about 60 countries, spent a lot of time in Asia, lived in Korea and Thailand for a time, um, and am sort of breaking some new travel ground, spending some more time in Latin America in recent years. Hmm. Are, are some countries better for just playing it by ear and vagabonding than others? Well, I like to think in principle that every every country is good for playing it by ear. You know, my first vagabonding experience in earnest was in the United States. I had a lot of spontaneous travel there. Uh, so I encourage it everywhere. I, I know that some travels are, or some, some countries are certainly um, cheaper to travel, and uh, some cultures are more open to random guests than others, which is why I always enjoyed traveling in Asia uh, and, and the Middle East and even developing countries because uh, people aren't as busy as we are in the industrialized world and they have some time to take an interest in you. Well, talk a bit about that, Rolf, because random guests, that's to me the, the gateway to some travel magic. Where is it right. particularly easy with the cultures? Where do the cultures specialize in that? Well, the, the classic place is the Middle East, which, of course, people are being discouraged from traveling there, sometimes with good reason, but Arab cultures have uh, hospitality as, as a virtue. It's just amazing and uh, enriching to go to a place like that hmm. and to receive the hospitality from a culture who have been cultivating hospitality for a thousand years. And you can actually learn a lot about hospitality by traveling to some of these countries because people are so open to guests. You really can. I've heard that, that phrase, mi casa su casa, right? My house hmm. is your house. Uh, I've heard it casually over the years, but when I went down to Central America, I realized this is serious hospitality. I mean, my house is your house. Come on in. You'll yeah. find rich opportunities if you can make yourself approachable and flexible enough to take advantage of the local hospitality. I encourage travel solo. I don't discourage traveling in right. groups, but sometimes when you travel alone, you're more open to those sorts of invitations. You're less self-enclosed. But right. um, right. yeah, Latin America, Asia, many parts of Europe, Africa, uh, hospitality is just an exuberant part of the of the culture. Yeah. Come on to my house and my house. I'm gonna give you candy. Come on to my house and my house. I'm gonna give you apple, plum, and apricot too. Come on to my house, my house. Come on. Come on to my house, my house. Come on. Come on to my house and my house. I'm gonna give you figs and dates and grapes and cakes. Come on to my house, my house. Come on. Come on to my house, my house. Come on. Come on to my house and my house. I'm gonna give you candy. Come on to my house and my house. I'm gonna give you everything. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at AA.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
Travel writer and blogger Rolf Potts is our guest today on Travel with Rick Steves. We're exploring his concept of vagabonding at 877-333-RICK. And you can continue the conversation online in the radio section at ricksteves.com. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And Rolf is the, I think he must be the ultimate vagabond traveler these days. He's written a book called Vagabonding, The Uncommon Guide to the Art of Long-Term World Travel. He's got a website called vagabonding.net, and there you can check out Rolf's blog and all the other writing he's doing. Uh, Rolf, I mean, you've been a, a travel writer for a long time before you actually wrote this Vagabonding Guide. Isn't that right? Yeah, I've been a travel writer full-time since 1999. When did this Vagabonding book come out? came out in 2003. It's an excellent book, and uh, we're talking long-term travel, and there's some basic differences. Most of us know when you go on a short-term trip, pretty straightforward, you know, you got your passport that's valid, you get your plane ticket, and make a few hotel reservations, you're on your way. Uh, what kind of concerns does uh, a long-term trip have that are different from the short-term trip? Well, uh, you're away for weeks or even months at a time, so you sort of have to make sure that things are short away on the home front. If you own a house, then you should probably rent it out. If you are renting, then you should put your things in storage. You should uh, figure out a way to pay off your credit cards online and maybe even get a, a friend or a family member to sort of help manage your hmm. finances and things back home and reward that person richly with souvenirs. <laughs> then logistically, do some planning, stay flexible, and pack very, very light. And I've found that when you travel in the long term, your best ally is yourself because you can do all the planning in the world, but after two or three days on the road, you're going to learn things in a visceral way um, that'll just make you that much smarter than you were before you left. Hmm. When a lot of people dream about doing what you do and they say, if I could just win the lottery, I could go motorbike across China or something like that. But, you know, I think that's a misconception. You don't need to be suddenly wealthy to do this. In the developing world, in the cheaper places to travel, what's a general budget? What would you say is a target for a month, for instance, on the road? You can go to a place like India, which is one of the cheapest places in the world where I've traveled, and you can you can sort of thumbnail a month at about a thousand dollars. You can you can travel for less, mm -hmm. but I encourage people to so uh, thir maybe... thirty bucks a day in the developing world would do it, huh? Yeah, quite, yeah, quite comfortably, I would imagine, if you know how to take advantage of local restaurants and hotels and so on. Exactly. Um, you know, you can probably get away with 800 or 600 in a place like India or even parts of Southeast Asia. But I try to encourage people to be a little bit conservative when they're making their plans just so, you know, they can learn those techniques. And if you don't mind sleeping in a small little mom and pop hotel that costs two bucks, then then go for it. Do you find there's B&Bs all over the world? Uh, there's there's B&Bs or sort of uh, local variations thereof. Um, they're guest houses. Right. Uh, and, you know, keeping in mind that uh, many big resorts are geared towards travelers from other countries, but people inside India travel all the time. In fact, that's one thing I noticed in India that was fascinating. I mean, and I tried to fall into the, there's two parallel worlds of tourism, one for the international wealthy travelers and another for English-speaking Indians on the road. And I really found that to be a, a fun alternative. Most definitely, and that it's not something that's just uh, restricted to India. You no. can, you can almost any country in the world. There's going to be people moving around, and there's mm -hmm. going to be a transportation network and a hotel network and restaurants that are set up for getting people around in the country where you are. And if you use that local travel infrastructure, your experiences are just, are just so much richer. Oh, yeah. I found in much of the developing world, anything rolling on a back road will pick up somebody who needs a ride. There's an ethic that people let you hitch a ride and you might contribute a little money or they might just do you a favor. Yeah, and, and they take an interest in you. If, if a guy like me who's six foot three and very pale is, is walking <laughs> in the back country of Laos, then uh, they're going to pick you up as a hitchhiker because that's the most interesting thing that's happened to them this month. When you're on the road indefinitely, the ATM card is your, your sort of lifeline to your, your cash, isn't it? It really is. You know, I, when I first started traveling long term, uh, I got traveler's checks, and I'm sure there's some situations in which traveler's checks would work, but the ubiquity of ATMs is so common now. They're, right. just, they're just everywhere but that it's been a long time since I've fallen back on traveler's checks. And, um, you know, there's some remote areas where there aren't ATMs, but just uh, load up with a little local cash in the capital town, say. And then, sure. I would imagine if there's not an ATM machine, it'd be tough to cash a traveler's check, too. That's true. That's a very good point. So I think I've cashed my last traveler's check. Hey, we got some callers on the line. I'm talking, by the way, with Rolf Potts, and Rolf writes a, a great book called Vagabonding. Uh, we got Eric on the line in Topeka, Kansas. Hi, Eric. Hi, Rick. Hi, Rolf. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah. What hey, do you Eric. Have, any thoughts on vagabonding? Well, um, I'm sort of a, a late bloomer when it comes to the 
the joys of international travel or discovering the joys. I uh, took my first trip abroad to Europe in uh, when I was 29, and um, now I'm approaching 40. I've been um, to Europe three times and to Mexico, and I've had a great time, but it's no longer really an option for me to uh, to travel solo. I have a, I have a child now. Mm. Um, I'm wondering, you said earlier, Rolf, that you like to encourage solo travel, but I'm wondering if it's possible to, to vagabond with, with kids. Absolutely. So, one um, kid, anyway. Uh, what, um, what, can, you, can you tell me a little more about that? I... Yeah, well, it's, it's something that, um, I mean, it's, you don't read uh, about this in the media every day of people packing up their kids and hitting the road for a couple of months or weeks uh-huh. or years, but it happens. Uh, I've met people with not just one kid, but uh, with maybe two or three kids, uh, and have sort of turned the world into their mobile classroom. Um, mm. They've uh, they've gone in and, and done the necessary homeschool arrangements, and so you have an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, and a twelve-year-old who are sort of getting a uh, grade school year abroad, and it's 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 amazing. I mean, it's really it brings home so many educational concepts to these kids. And of course, when you travel with a kid, it's going to be a little bit different than if you're traveling by yourself, and you should. You know, abide by the same cautions that you would abide by in certain neighborhoods and situations at home. But um, I wouldn't take having a kid as a as a reason for not traveling. I say just um, get them a little backpack and some good shoes and and bring them along. <laughs> Does the home exchange model fit with the mindset that you're talking about with vagabonding? Certainly, in, in some way. I, I guess I, I picture some some of the best experiences I've had while traveling have been. Um, when I've just made time to stay in a place for four or five or six days and uh, and explored the place, and so so I see that with a child as as, a, as a, an opportunity to maybe even extend that period of time and and look at it as vagabonding locally or with or within a restricted region. Now, Eric, you've done that in Europe, right? The home exchange. Um, I, well, I haven't I haven't done home exchanges yet. I'm just, oh, okay. I actually don't know much about that. I am. Um, oh, people who do I, that. I, I'm thinking about that now as an option to travel. With a child that's that's maybe less demanding than trying to get from city to city day after day. Oh, yeah, with the, with young families, home exchanges. People who do this are just really enthusiastic about it. The homeschooling is is a rich opportunity when you're on the road. Uh, you can search that on the web, and there's there's organizations that do a great job of matching up people on their home exchanges. Uh, we've had a few interviews that you could find in our archive at ricksteves.com about home exchanges, but. Boy, oh boy, that's a good way to go with a family. And then you're less like uh, constantly on the move. I would think with a with young kids, you'd be a little more comfortable settling in for a couple of weeks here and there. Sure. Uh, I have another question, actually. Um, earlier you mentioned allowing time for serendipity. Uh, yeah. would, you, would, would you mind sharing some examples of, of what you mean by that? The example that popped into my head when you mentioned that is the first time I went to Southeast Asia in 1999. I was excited about going there, and I had done a lot of planning for my travels. And so I'd planned on going to Indonesia and Malaysia, Thailand, Cambodia, Burma, Laos. I got to Thailand, which was my first destination, and I liked it so much that I spent six months in Southeast Asia and never did get to Indonesia and never did get to Malaysia and actually didn't get to Burma until many years later. And so I think the serendipity of, of realizing that I should follow what I love and what I am attracted to instead of just my itinerary allowed serendipity to make that a much more interesting uh, adventure. Hmm. That's a, I, that brings back memories for me of Bali, and I was in Bali, and uh, you know, as soon as you get out of the tourist areas of Bali, it's just this um, amazing wonderland culturally, and I was uh, invited because I had a nice camera to be a, the photographer at a wedding, a village wedding, and you know, I thought, wow, couldn't ask for a better uh, serendipitous opportunity to connect with a family and see a local festival, and I was actually part of it because I was shooting photographs for them. And I didn't realize that the, it was a mobile festival, and I was hanging from the back of these pickups going from the bride's village to the groom's village, and it turned into an odyssey, and it took an entire day, and it was just a glorious experience, and I can't believe, had I said, I didn't have time to do that. You've got to be open for these things, even if you don't know how they're going to unfold. And boy, especially in the developing world, I think it really lends itself to just getting up in the morning and walking down the little dikes that divide the rice paddies and see what you come to. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, you can't really plan for an Indian wedding when you're planning your trip in Illinois. <laughs> so if you're not open to it, then you're going to miss out that experience that could be your richest memory of that place. 
I've really noticed that in, in Europe or in the developed world, you're inclined to have a, a, a strict list of sites and you want to get here at this hour because it's less crowded and so on. But as soon as you get beyond where the mainstream tourism is, it becomes more of a cultural scavenger hunt and things unfold that you could not imagine. And if you're good at letting loose those opportunities, it becomes the most rewarding kind of travel. Eric, thanks for your call. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, good luck with your uh, family travels on the road. We'll be on the road soon. Thanks. All right. And we have Holger on the line in Tillamook, Oregon. Hi, Holger. How you doing, sir? Good. Thanks for your call. Uh, thank you. Yes. Uh, my question is, uh, how do you take an extended stay in a, in a country that's expensive to, to stay in, like Switzerland? And I'm a senior citizen, so uh, do they have a network, uh, you know, like hostels for young kids? Well, what about older older people? You know, to make your extended stay worthwhile rather than just go there for, you know, a week or two. Sure. One thing that pops into my mind is uh, is hospitality exchanges. Servas has been doing that for years. Um, now that the Internet is so central to travel planning, you have places like hospitalityclub.com and couchsurfing.com. I don't know if you're a senior if you want to surf a couch, but um, there are hospitality exchanges to be had, and you just sign up, and then you can sort of spend a few days with different hosts in countries oh, like Switzerland. For a few days. Do you have those on, on your website, uh, in your resource listings? I do. If you go to vagabonding.net slash resource, or just go to hospitalityclub.org or couchsurfing.com. Servas is a great outfit. Is that S-E-R-V-A-S dot yes, com, I, I would imagine? And I, it's, I think it's dot org. Dot org, okay. Yes. Um, so those hospitality changes are fa- uh, fantastic, and I've heard some great feedback from those in Europe, so I encourage that. I also um, would encourage you not to be shy about hostels. I traveled in hostels in China with my parents, who are in their 60s, and they loved it, and the people in the hostels loved them. Mm. Just because it's a hostel doesn't mean that the young people are going to be hostile to you mm. uh, if, if you're not of the stereotypical age. And in fact, uh, sometimes it can be a benefit. Oh, I think seniors are respected in the hostels. And uh, you don't want to go to the big city hostels uh, in school break because they'll be overrun by young backpackers. Mm. But in the smaller towns and in the Alps and in the distant corners, you find these beautiful, sleepy little hostels that are run by a, a family, and uh, you, you'll notice that they've taken the word youth out of the hostel system, and in Europe it's called Hosteling International now, and you can live for $20 a night for your bed plus groceries, and, and that's one good way to, to stretch your budget. Yeah, hostels really have come a long way since even I started traveling. I stayed at a hostel in Prague last summer, and it was just amazing. It was clean and wonderful and cheap, and and uh, so I encourage travelers of all ages to uh, to embrace uh, hostel travel as a way to go. And just as a tip, if the advertisement for the hostel says 24-hour party, you know, beer chugging contest, then probably it's a <laughs> it's a, uh, a hostel for students. But um, really, probably more often than not, a given hostel in Europe is going to cater to people who just want a, a cozy, comfortable time. But that's okay. a that's a very good point, Rolf. Uh, hostels have their fortes, and some of them pride themselves in being the best party hostel, the site of the Pink Palace in Corfu. And others are uh, actually wanting more thoughtful travelers and want more cultural exchanges and, and to be a more mellow place just so people can afford to enjoy their town. I think when, when we talk about vagabonding and, and traveling in a way that's not time poor, you find that in hostels because there's a lot of people that are just on extended tours that, that just move into a hostel for a few days and, and they'll hang out and do their art or they'll write their poetry or they'll um, make, you know, um, take a class or something like this. And in the hostels, you'll find an almost contagious uh, uh, interest in, in slowing down and really connecting with the cultures. And as Rolf said, it's certainly not uh, limited to young people. Yeah, I've met I've met some of the some of my best friends to this day are people I met in hostels. People, uh, it's just a um, you just meet a really nice sort of people in those places. They're people who are open to new experiences and new friends and new places. Holger, good luck with your travels. Okay, thank you. Uh, uh, hopefully next year I'll go to Australia. By the way, Holger, I think you mentioned you're going to the Alps. Remember, in the Alps, it's not just what the the, the classic kind of hostels that are so famous with American travelers, but there are the equivalent of mountaineers' huts. They called them nature freundenhuts, friend, uh-huh. friends okay. of nature huts. And right. and matratzenlager is a key word. Lager is a is a is a loft, and matratzen I think is mattress, and it's literally a mattress loft. And you know you'll have a humble little cafe high up in the mountains for hikers to have a lunch, and upstairs you got twenty mattresses just spread out, and yeah. and there there you can sleep for a few bucks a night with other hikers, and uh, that can be a very good uh, way to enjoy the wonders of the Alps without going broke. Yeah, I have one advantage. I speak German, so... All right. Good. Well, then you know how to say Matratzenlager. 
Good luck, Holger. Thanks. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Holger. And Vicky in Phoenix, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. How are you doing? Good. Are you thinking about some vagabonding? Looking forward to it, yeah. My husband and I love to travel, and when we do, we go without too much of an itinerary. We tend to be independent travelers. would love to spend some more time doing it. And out here, of course, timeshares are a huge push in the market for people to buy and sell them. Timeshares. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that those fit anywhere into the vagabonding lifestyle, or is it better off to be more freelance? Uh, I think they certainly can. Um, as Eric was saying before, um, sometimes it's nice to go overseas and stay in one place for a while, and I encourage that for anyone, home shares or not, or home exchanges or not, um, and timeshares. I guess um, from my POV, and, and Rick can chime in too, it depends on where in the world you go. Uh, some places like Southeast Asia or parts of Central America or India, housing is going to be so cheap there that you probably don't need to do some sort of timeshare type scenario. Whereas if you're going to a more industrialized part of the world, uh, it might be more economical to try and work homestays into your itinerary. Rick, what do you think? I, I agree. In fact, I find a lot of people that really mess up their priorities by thinking, i got to stay here because I've got a timeshare availability. And they forget that where they want to go is more important than where they can get a covered bed. And you can find that uh, you can find affordable guest house or something like that in places that you don't have the timeshare condo, and that's more in tune with your travel dreams. Yeah, I lived in Thailand a few years ago, and I was sort of looking into maybe buying some sort of property there. But then when I broke down the finances, I realized that uh, I could just buy a normal night at at a uh, guest house or or even rent a house for a while and have the option of uh, spending the next winter in... um, Paraguay or someplace like that. It's funny you say that because so many times I've been tempted to buy a charming little spot and then it occurs to me I want to be free to go everywhere and especially in a you know a hut uh, up in Pokhara in, in uh, Nepal or, or a, a thatched guest house on the beach of Sri Lanka that's going to cost me less than the interest I would make if I put that money I would have bought a cottage for in the bank and just uh, traveled and, and be free as the wind. So uh, the vagabonder I think doesn't want to have a, a regular address. He wants to be able to live off the land and and go wherever the spirit uh, moves him. Yeah, flexibility is certainly a consideration um, when you think about a timeshare or buying property overseas. Do I want to be here every winter for the next 20 winters? Hey, Vicki, thanks for your call. Thank you very much. Happy travels. You too. I'm Rick Steves. Uh, We're talking with Rolf Potts, and Rolf writes a book called Vagabonding, an uncommon guide to the art of long-term world travel. Free and easy, that's my style. Howdy do me, watch me smile, fairly well me, after a while, cause I gotta roam, and any place I hang my hat is home. 877-333-RICK and radio at ricksteves.com. That's how you reach us at Travel with Rick Steves. And our website has message boards where you can continue today's conversation with your comments, stories, and feedback. It's on our website at ricksteves.com. There's more with Rolf Potts about vagabonding coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves.
Hello, I'm Mehlika Seval from Turkey. Now I'll give you a tongue twister in Turkish. Bir berber, bir berbere, bire berber, gel beraber, berberistanda berber dükkanı açalım demiş. Which means, one barber to another barber said, come barber, let's open up a barber shop in berberistan together. Bir berber, bir berbere, bire berber, gel beraber, berberistanda berber dükkanı açalım demiş. Wow. <laughs> That was good. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Rolf Potts, and, and Rolf is a vagabond, and uh, he writes a book called Vagabonding from a lot of first-hand experience. The book's called Vagabonding, The Uncommon Guide to the Art of Long-Term World Travel. Rolf, you must write when you're in these great spots and you're just immersed in the, the wonders of the world. I, I've got a, a couple of paragraphs I want to read here out of your book. Vagabonding is like a pilgrimage without a specific destination or goal, not a quest for answers so much as a celebration of the questions an embrace of the ambiguous, and an openness to anything that comes your way. Indeed, if you set off down the road with specific agendas and goals, you will at best discover the pleasure of, of meeting those goals. But if you wander with open eyes and simple curiosity, you'll discover a much richer pleasure, the simple feeling of possibility that hums from every direction as you move from place to place. Rolf, do you write when you're on the road? I do. Um, from the time I took my first two-year... Um Asia trip, writing was part of what I did. I wrote a travel column for Salon.com for a while, and just by necessity, I had to write on the road, so uh, I mix it up. I just find that it's critical, if you are a writer, to be out there taking notes and immersed in it all to do your writing. Sitting on the top of a dune in Morocco, you can, you can write a poem that you've never written before. Let me talk about a little bit of practicalities here. First of all, is there an art to getting time off, or do you have to quit your job? Well, sometimes quitting your job is an option. Um, there's many different approaches, and it really depends on what kind of job you have. You can uh, talk to your boss and ask for maybe an unpaid leave or a sabbatical. You know, it depends on what point in your career you are, but I know some people who sort of work on a contract basis. They work as maybe carpenters or, or fishermen. Seasonally, they can, uh, they can work one season and travel the next season. So um, there's no universal method of, of getting time off, but uh, the first step might be to ask most people well, don't even think about it. And a lot of employers value this whole concept of sabbatical. We had a, a fascinating show a while back about sabbaticals that, that people can visit on our archive at ricksteves.com. But that whole idea of refreshing your spirit and so on, recharging, uh, recreating a little bit by taking an extended leave, some employers might see uh, if it fits in with the you know busy time and the slow time in their, in their work year, might be something they'd be happy to let you do. Yeah, and you know, um, the world is becoming increasingly more mobile with Skype and the internet and things like that. I know a lot of people who um, maybe do four hours a week, do, do some consulting, keep one contract while they're traveling, mm -hmm. um, or even work out of a move to Rio or Cape Town and uh, work out of a mobile office for the winter. Now, a practical um, issue there, a lot of people would think that in the poorer countries you wouldn't find internet cafes and so on. Are you able to find internet cafes anywhere? You are. It's amazing. Uh, in 1999, I went through Cambodia one month, and it was $20 an hour for a lousy dial-up. And I came back through three months later, and it was like $2, and there were five internet cafes on hmm. that block. In fact, I think that you're more likely to find an internet cafe in poorer countries than in wealthier countries, because uh, in wealthy countries, everybody's online at home. And in poor countries, all the kids are doing their online games and so on down in the corner. You talked in your book about... Um, few the practicalities, just like the, what you call the squatty potty, you know, the, the footprints that you squat over in, in most of the world that doesn't have a sit-down toilet. Is mm -hmm. this still common, or do you find that sit-down toilets are becoming the norm? Well, I don't know if, if uh, squatty potties are a matter of technology as much as just cultural habit. I mean, uh, uh, in, in Korea, they think it's a little strange that you would put your butt on this porcelain thing that 20 other people have put their butt on, and so the squatty potty is par for the course. And people are comfortable squatting. I mean, I've been in villages in Indonesia where the entire all the kids are gathered around uh, a TV that's, that's sitting on a pedestal in the main square, and there's no chairs. They're just all squatting because that's how they're comfortable sitting, and we've learned not to do that, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's one challenge. I'm sort of a leggy guy, and it's a little hard for me to squat, but that's one of the cultural lessons that I've learned when you force yourself to squat over a little hole in the bus station in, in India. Not to belabor this point, but I've actually seen stick figure instructions on airplanes in South Asia explaining to people not to squat on the, on the rim of the toilet, to squat mm, over yeah. it when they're flying. People who have never sat on a toilet before. 
Yeah. It's as strange of a concept to them as squatting is, you know, to us. And in fact, um, probably in, in more parts of the world than not, they don't even use paper. They use, uh, they use water. I mean, that's an episode in itself is the cultural manifestations of going to the toilet. They don't have paper because they just don't consume as much paper. And uh, you've got that little squirt mechanism, right? Yeah, or they have a little uh, bowl of water uh, or a bucket of water, and you dip out a bit and you wash. And the logic, if you ask people about it, you know, with your eyebrows raised, they'll say, well, if you got dung on your face, would you wipe it off with paper or would you wash it off with water? That so it's a, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a cultural lesson, and, it, and it's interesting. And I'm still more comfortable with paper myself, to be quite honest, but uh, I'm pretty handy with a, with a bowl of water, too. But a lot of toilets can't handle the paper, so you'll see a little waste basket uh, filled with dirty paper from tourists or people that don't want to wash with water. And uh, a lot of Americans think that is so crude, and they'll put the paper in the toilet, but they'll just mess up the toilet if they do that. Yeah, yeah. Even in Europe, they uh, they discourage putting paper in, in the toilet. So. so that's probably just good etiquette. If you're traveling and you see a waste basket filled with a dirty toilet paper, that's where it goes. Mm, yeah. And shake hands with your right hand. Yes, definitely in Asia. <laughs> All right. Hey, uh, Rolf, what about culture shock? Do you uh, deal with that in your book, and is it a, a big issue for people that are leaving home for one of these extended vagabonding experiences? Uh, culture shock is, because culture shock isn't something that happens at an intellectual level. It's something that happens at a gut level, because you live on certain cultural expectations every day and assumptions, and then all of a sudden you're in a country where they don't value individualism because that's sort of a betrayal of your duties to your family and your community, and they don't, uh, they use squatty potties and, and water, and, and you can think about that before you go, but when you're surrounded by this, mm-hmm. all this newness and all these different ways of thinking, mm-hmm. you can really begin to get a little bit paranoid and think that these things are done for your specific discomfort. I think one of the, the major challenges for Americans is to go to a country where time is not money. In our country, we have no problem with that. Time is money. You, you spend it, you invest it, you bank it, you, you can waste it. Uh, and in India, time is, it, it's, it's not that of a precious of a commodity. And, and you can really be exasperated uh, in a bureaucracy when things are going slow. And you're the only one that's spinning his wheels and everybody else is just taking it in stride. Yeah, or even in a restaurant. I was in Rishikesh, India once, and there was an Italian restaurant in Rishikesh, and some women from California were there, and they ordered some lasagna, and it took 45 minutes to get there, mm-hmm. and then it didn't taste very good. They were angry, but I think you could take that same experience as a cultural lesson. One, if you're going to go to India, maybe you shouldn't order lasagna, because there's there, there's <laughs> great point. normal food there, right. great Indian food. And two... Um, Maybe um, you can see the world through Indian eyes if you have 45 minutes to wait before your food shows up. You know, it's just a different pace and it's a different way of seeing the world. That's the mark of a good traveler when you're in a land where time is not money. I think that it would be really important when you're vagabonding and where the what carbonates your trip is not the great art you're going to see in a museum, but the amount of uh, interaction you have with the local people, to be an extrovert. Do you find that some people um, have this down particularly good? What are your tips on on connecting with people? I think just just staying open to interaction is important. I'm I'm not naturally an extrovert myself, but I become one on the road, possibly because I, I travel alone, and um, I'm a pretty good listener. And so um, I think sometimes people aren't used to being listened to. And so if you meet a a guy in uh, in Peru whose wife doesn't listen to him, well then um, you're listening to him and you're learning about his country and he's learning about yours. So um, listening is as important as talking when you're thinking about extroversion. What about, what about sharing? I mean, if you're an American, you come from a, a fascinating and often misunderstood corner of the planet. If you come with a Ziploc baggie full of show-and-tell items, you have enough, you can share as well as enjoy learning. Yeah, you can think in, in terms of what you might have in common with people. They might not have a 27-inch flat-screen TV, but I bet they have a mother. So <laughs> if, if you bring a picture of your mother or People your... People love that. Or your children or your work or your church or your town yeah. or your whatever you got in, in your corner of the world that's interesting. Exactly. And, and you can really find some common ground there. And it, there, there are just some very simple, basic human truths that, that everybody holds dear. Even if you're in a country where people politically and religiously and philosophically completely disagree with you, they still love their children and, and uh, want to, their parents to live well. And so that's definitely something. Pictures of your family are great to mm. bring. Um, little, little keepsakes of home, nothing too big, but right. a little can... pin that says, 
Seattle or Kansas yeah. or... You know, when you're over there, in the, especially in the developing world, it can be quite intense. And after a while, I remember just, I needed a break. And I found that I could retreat into an air-conditioned uh, movie theater, and that would give me a little break. Or I would even go to a fancy hotel and just sit in, in, the, in the bar and have a drink. Or I could even go to the American Embassy and, and read American magazines or something like this. Do you have any tricks for handling the exhaustion of being on the streets in a, in a world that feels like somebody let out the zoo? Yeah, well, one of them is what you just mentioned, is um, giving yourself a vacation from your vacation. You know, if you've been s- spending $15 a night on a hotel, then splurge and spend 150 and get a massage or something. Or go and see a movie. I remember one of my favorite movies to this day is Charlie's Angels, not because it's a good movie, but because I saw it after four months of traveling in India, and it was yeah, just this... it's a trip this, back home for two hours. <laughs> yeah, it was this... It was this injection of American culture for two hours. And I it's just had the dark and time. you're back in the United States and it's cool. And then you step back outside and, and, and the blast furnace of the local culture mm. hits you in the face and you go, oh yeah, I'm still in India. But that just gives you a little bit of a break. I think that's uh, very helpful. I'm speaking with Rolf Potts and Rolf writes Vagabonding, the Uncommon Guide to the Art of Long-Term World Travel. Rolf's uh, website is vagabonding.net. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK or you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Barbara is on the line in Seattle. Hi, Barbara. Thanks for waiting. Hi. Thank you so much for taking my call. Yeah. Um, this topic is just perfect timing for my husband and myself. The longest trip we've taken has been three weeks, and we've enjoyed our trip so much that now we're considering going to Europe or Australia for six weeks or longer. And my questions really have to do with practicalities. We travel light. We will not have a laptop computer. Do you have any tips on how to check and pay our credit card bills while we're out of the country? Most credit card uh, companies these days should have a way that you can um, pay your your bills online. I think it's just a matter of sending in a bank routing number. Uh-huh. And so inquire with your credit card company. If it's if it's a major credit card through a, you know, a significant bank, then you should be able to manage your uh, finances from Internet cafes, which um, having just spent five weeks in Australia are all over the place there. Oh, that's terrific. And if I could ask one more quick question. Any advice on pros and cons of leasing versus renting a car when you're going to be gone for that long? Leasing versus uh, renting. Rick, do you have any perspective on that? Yeah, well, my understanding is, and I I just know Europe uh, in this regard, is um, for a longer rental, um, I think Renault has it as little as 17 days, but generally 21 days or more, you can lease a car. And my understanding is that technically you're you're kind of uh, buying it and selling it back or something like that, and you get around a lot of the insurance and taxes that are quite costly, so you can save a lot of money by leasing. But talk to your car rental uh, agencies or your travel agent about that, and it is a money saver if you're going to rent for three weeks or longer. Great. Well, thank you so much. Good luck, Barbara. Thank you. And Rebecca in Indiana. Rebecca, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. It's really great to be here. Thanks for calling, yeah. You got some vagabonding dreams percolating? I went to Scotland last year for uh, what they call Hogmanay. It's actually New Year's, what we call it. Hmm. And I was using all your advice, and I I wouldn't have had such a great time if I hadn't followed the main advice that you gave me, which was make friends with the locals. Mm-hmm. I found out a whole bunch of stuff about all the places I had been, and I was just fascinated by it and took along a little notebook of stuff, and um, it really worked really well for me. I took along Xerox copy of... Uh, maps and stuff like that. And every time I got lost, all I had to do is turn to a local and they were the friendliest people. And they, I just said, I need to go there. And they said, go this way or go that mm-hmm. way. And my family moved out of there in 1655 and we hadn't been back since. So hmm. I kind of wanted to go. That's great to go back to the homeland of your ancestors. And I think anywhere you'll find that if you're um, respectful and approach the people, and if you're uh, easy to approach, you'll find all sorts of friends in your travels. Have you found that, Rolf, that it Across the board, you can find people are supportive of your travels and helpful? Absolutely. Yeah. There's so many ways that you can engage a local, from, from asking directions to jumping into a game of pickup soccer. People do want to help you, and they do uh, appreciate the novelty of having someone from halfway around the world be a part of their day for a little while. It's very important. Well, thanks, Rebecca. You're welcome. Good luck with your travels. Thank you. I'm speaking with Rolf Potts, and Rolf writes Vagabonding. Hey, Rolf, um, in your book you talk about uh, self-help books, and I thought that was very interesting. Uh, you know, in our society, a lot of times if we want to figure something else, we, we buy a, a book about how to simplify Christmas or take the stress out of the holidays or uh, a dummy's guide to sanity in a fast-paced commercial world. Uh, what was your point in bringing that into your book? 
Well, I think I realized in conceptualizing a book about long-term world travel that it wasn't just a matter of saying, okay, use these sorts of hostels and go to these websites, that you have to approach it from a conceptual level. I had actually just been going down the Irrawaddy River in Burma, and the only copy, the only English book for sale in this little town was Dale Carnegie's uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Uh-huh. You know, that's sort of an old chestnut of a book now, but it, it, was, it really sort of grabbed me when I was on that trip about how people are looking for ways to fine-tune and improve their lives. And so I approached the book from a practical sense, but from a philosophical sense, too, because you have to sort of convince yourself that you can travel and you have to get over some fears and, and conceptualize your travel before you can make those hostile networks and websites work for you. So vagabonding is a way to not need self-help books. It's, it lets you find where you're going, where you're, you know, you talk about how uh, through your vagabonding you can actually discover your core values. Yeah, it's sort of a self-perpetuating ethic. You know, the more you travel, the better you get at it, the more you learn, and the more likely you are to be able to travel again in the future. So travel is is its own way of, of self-help, I guess. It's a way of, of looking at your own life from a different standpoint and uh, maybe getting a perspective on the life you live back home. Rolf, I would imagine one challenge is, after you've had your whole lifestyle challenged and reshaped by your vagabonding, coming home and, and reassimilating. Uh, what are your tips and experiences in that regard? Well, I'd say just take that same travel attitude home with you and explore your hometown like it was an exotic country and your neighbors like they were exotic tribesmen. <laughs> and, and, and remember that at the end of the day, your travels are going to be more interesting to you than to your family or friends because um, they weren't there. And so if they get tired of your stories, just keep them to yourself and uh, continue to keep that openness and that good attitude towards your hometown. I've had that same experience. I can't explain India to people, you know. In, in your book, you said, once home, don't tell the story, live the story. What do you mm. mean by that? Well, I mean, just uh, continue to take that same curiosity and wonder that you would have an exotic place and uh, apply it in your own life. You know, try to try to make yourself rich in time in your own activities and, and learn more about people that maybe you ignored uh, by a matter of habit before. And then sort of the classic irony, once you get home, you might feel a homesickness for the road. Exactly, yeah. Wow. Rolf, you've traveled all over the world. How has that affected your assessment of, of just people in general? I think you get a personal perspective of people all over the world, and and instead of fearing people from other parts of the world, as you might if you watch the news too much, uh, you learn to celebrate people and celebrate uh, the connections that you've made. You can have this sense of calm in yourself that you've met these people as friends and neighbors and that the news doesn't exist to inform you about how people are. Wow, that is a beautiful souvenir. I've been speaking with Rolf Potts, and Rolf writes Vagabonding, an Uncommon Guide to the Art of Long-Term World Travel. You can learn more about Rolf's work uh, by going to his website. It's vagabonding.net. Rolf, thanks so much. You've just filled us with all sorts of temptations to actually take a long-term vagabonding vacation. Well, thank you, Rick. over the That you dare to dream Really do come true Someday I'll wish upon a star And wake up where the clouds are far behind me Where troubles melt like lemon drops Away above the chimney tops That's where Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to Bryce Legrand at the Journal Broadcast Group of Kansas for engineering assistance today. Find links to our guests plus audio and video podcast features and submit your questions for Rick. Look for the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.